This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, this is Positive Parenting, and I'm Armin Brott. In the 200 years since we discovered that microbes cause infectious disease, we battled to keep them at bay. But in some of the most exciting scientific developments of our time, researchers have recently discovered the myriad ways that those tiny little microbes, the stuff that's going on in your gut, actually have a powerful impact on our health. Among the most important but little-known revelations of this amazing field are the ways that children's gut health can affect their well-being for the rest of their lives. Better yet, researchers have discovered concrete ways that parents can implement this knowledge to positively influence our kids' health long-term. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with one of those researchers who's not only a scientist, but she's also a parent and is at the forefront of research into this field. And she's going to be talking to us about cutting-edge research from her own lab and other labs. And she's going to talk to us also about how the trillions of microbes in our bodies strongly affect childhood development, why an imbalance in those microbes can lead to obesity, asthma, diabetes, among other chronic conditions, and how, from conception on, parents can make choices to influence their own behaviors and those of their children. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about those trillions of microbes and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take the baby outside every day, even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Marie-Claire Arietta, who's the co-author with Brett Finley of Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. Marie-Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the over-sanitized world part of things. I've been on a, a kick for quite a while about the the dangers of antibacterial soap and you know that everybody seems to have and the need to sterilize everything before we touch and you you talk about that in the book about how that's not doing our immune system any good yeah that's right and like you say i mean those two things are so common now um and it's also just starting to to us to to think about the kids nowadays are the cleanest they have ever been in human history for a number of reasons for the fact that we go on this you know spree of, of sanitizing everything but just for the fact that they spend the least time outside outside that they that they have um, so there's there's recent studies that, that point that uh, 
they now spent about half of the time outside that they spent only 20 years ago. So yeah, we're definitely missing out on uh, what we know is a critical exposure to bacteria. And there's an, enough research to, to convince us and, and many other experts that this is detrimental to their health. Do you think there's any connection between that and the drug resistance or the antibiotic-resistant superbugs we're hearing a lot about now? Yeah, for sure. So the, the even though the health detriment aspect of missing out on bacteria uh, may or may not be related to anti- antibacterial resistance, what's happening is that since we're using so many antimicrobial products, and we're not just talking about antibiotics, we're talking about every other hygiene product that, that we own will have an antimicrobial chemical in it. But that is forcing bacteria to outsmart all these chemicals, and, and that is definitely influencing the rise in, in antibacterial uh, resistance. Now, I'm curious if you can make a distinction or if there is a distinction between bacteria and microbes we're going to be talking about microbes a lot as far as what's going on in the gut and the immune system. And, yeah, but, uh, you know, people sure. t- there's antibacterial soap and there's antimicrobial soap, and I wonder if people might be confused by that. Yeah, so microbes encompass all sorts of life forms that are super tiny, including bacteria. But the word microbes also include, you know, viruses and yeasts and protozoans and other, you know, microscopic forms of life. Uh, in terms of the difference between of the antibacterial and the antimicrobial, antibacterials um, kill only bacteria or they're marketed to only kill bacteria, whereas antimicrobials, they, they kind of um, claim that they kill all microbes, even though th- those claims are a little bit uh, gray in nature. It's kind of impossible to, to test whether something will kill Absolutely all microbes, um, but that is the, the distinction. Most of the microbes that we have living in and on us are bacteria. Okay, so talk a little bit about the whole setup of the what we call the microbiome in our guts. Yes. What's going so on there? Basically, when we're born, just before we're born, we're sterile. We do not have any bacteria because the, the environment in the uterus is, is sterile. Uh, but the second that we come out, we're literally bathed in a secretion of microbes that come from vaginal and also fecal secretions. And even though that sounds pretty off-putting, that's just you know how nature has done it throughout millions of years for or all mammals that are born that way. And then throughout you know the first weeks and months, we get exposed to other sources of microbes that comes from the surfaces that we touch, um, to the diet that we feed ourselves. So for babies, breastfeeding, we know now is not only a source of nourishment, but it's also a source of microbes. Breast milk actually has a, a decent amount of microbes in it, um, and those are the, the microbes that are that are thought to be important in the development of, of the baby's immune system. And not only is the, the, the breast milk not sterile, but it has a, a dietary component. It has a, a group of carbohydrates that only bacteria can digest, meaning that when a mom is breastfeeding her baby, she's not only breastfeeding him or her, but also the microbes in that baby's tummy. Uh, and then, as you know, life continues and the baby grows, you know, how much the baby goes outside and so on, that continues to populate this huge uh, community of microbes that we call the microbiome in a child's gut. 
and it, it changes and fluctuates for about two to three years, and then after that, it stays pretty much stable throughout adulthood. You know, we talk about trillions of microbes, and you go to any drugstore, Costco, or anything else, and you can see all these different probiotics that, that, that claim to have trillions or billions of, of, of uh, microbes that they're going to replenish, and there's different kinds of yogurt that you can get that have all sorts of, you know, supposedly active cultures, and, and so there's, there's yeah. some discussion about this stuff, and I, I just, I look at those things, and I think, I mean, how can you buy in a bottle the exact formula that you need. I mean, because we, we need different concentrations of different microbes, and there there are, yes. are not only trillions of them, but there are, I don't know, hundreds of different types. Yes, for sure. And, yeah, the way the probiotic market has been established is to, you know, foster the benefits of a single or maybe two or three different species of microbes that we know in some cases um, have beneficial um, effects in terms of health. The issue with probiotics, I mean, is that they're not regulated. Um, they do not be FDI approved. Uh, and that means that if I want to grow bacteria in my lab tonight and sell it tomorrow, it would be actually pretty easy because I don't really need to claim that they're beneficial. I don't really need to do any studies about it. What that has done is that in the market, there's really good products, but most of them are not very good. And it's really hard as a consumer because how, how do you know? Um, the one thing that we did when we were writing this book and we realized how incredibly difficult it is to find uh, good probiotics, we found this fantastic resource uh, online that summarizes all the probiotic products that have undergone clinical, you know, randomized clinical trials, which is the gold standard that determines whether, you know, uh, something works or not. Right. And right. We, in, we included it in our website. Um, our website is um, letthenewdirt.com, and uh, in, in it you will find under resources a link to this uh, source of, of probiotic information. And we really want to encourage people to try and buy the products that actually work. With that said, it is a really big ask, like you're pointing, to, to hope that one species is really going to change our microbiome and that is going to you know, heal us from a disease. In fact, we know that that's not the case. They do come with uh, benefits for particular conditions. So for example, if you have diarrhea, probiotics have been shown time and time and again that they can be effective in treating that diarrhea. Um, in, in, for infants, there are some probiotic preparations that are actually quite good. And the reason is that in infants, the, the type of microbiome has a larger proportion of the bacterial species that are common in probiotics. So it makes sense that, that they work a little bit better. But for adults, I'm not saying that all of them are bad, but it's kind of tricky to find a good product. So what happens when we don't have enough of whatever they are? How, either whether we don't have enough of the different species or we don't have enough total of the trillions of them. What, what, how does that affect us? Well, it doesn't seem to be an issue of amount. In fact, we will grow the same amount of uh, microbes or bacteria regardless of what exposures we have because at the end, the gut is an extremely you know, rich environment in nutrients and in water for microbes to grow. So lots of microbes can make their way there, even though it may not be the ones that, that are the best in, in terms of our health. It does seem to matter the, the type of microbes that are there. So what can happen? Just recently last year, we found that uh, when three-month-old babies are missing four types of bacteria, and this is four out of the hundreds that are there, that puts them at a very high risk to develop allergies and asthma later in life. Uh, 
Um, similar studies have found associations of, you know, missing microbes early in life with obesity as well, uh, type, type 1 diabetes, and just with an overall defective immune system. Um, so it seems that the right type of microbes early in life is really critical for a lot more than what we thought initially. This, you know, you know, doctors and 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 scientists, we thought, yeah, we rely on microbes for a little bit of digestion and and they help make a couple of vitamins and that's it. Whereas now we're understanding that they do really, really critical tasks for our immune development, for our metabolic de- development, and for our brain development as well. So we we need the right kind of microbes early on, and it seems that modern life is really shifting the types of microbes that, that you know, we, we were used to, to grow up with. Marie-Claire Arietta is the co-author of Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Oversanitized World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Marie-Claire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Mary Claire Arietta, who's the co-author of Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Oversanitized World. And I want to have you talk a little bit more in detail about what, the, what you just left off with before the break, uh, about how the lack of, of the what's going on in the microbiome is influencing diabetes and, uh, and other, other kinds of things that you're talking about, uh, obesity and allergies and asthma. Uh, how, how does that work exactly? Well, scientists haven't been able to figure out exactly, you know, down pat all the molecular mechanisms of how this happened. But it seems that early in life, the type of microbes that humans, you know, throughout evolution have been used to have are microbes that keep the immune system in the gut uh, pretty tolerant. It kind of downplays the the reaction between microbes of the immune system. And this is really important during the first 6 to 12 months in life. Um, You don't want the gut to be a, a really chaotic place where the immune system is overwhelmed. What's happening uh, is that when we are changing, you know, the, the way babies are born and the type of, of, uh, of milk that they get and, you know, just the, the lack of exposure of, of being outside and, and getting dirty and those things, is that it, it seems that those what we call tolerogenic microorganisms uh, are no longer there or at least not to the same extent. And that really changes. The, the, the profile or the, the central task of that growing immune system. And that immune system can no longer develop the same way. So when that immune system is older, after a few years, it will not know how to react properly to uh, microbes that, for example, do not seem to, to, to cause any harm. And that can translate into allergies in other parts of the body. And this is when the, the, the science gets a little bit blurry because we still do not understand how the immune system in the gut affects other organs. We know that it happens from any experiments that we have done, but we do not know exactly you know, which are the cells that are involved. Uh, what we do know is that when, when this type of exposure is not there early in life, the immune system does not train properly. And this lack of train, training can be reflected not just in the gut, but in many organs outside of the gut, too. All right. So what causes imbalances or shortages? 
Um, difference, differences in, in what we call environmental exposure. So mode of birth, we know that the C-section um, is associated with disturbances of, of this early immune system, and it's also associated with an increased risk of uh, asthma, allergies, obesity, for example, inflammatory bowel disease as well. Uh, formula as well. So breastfeeding is a, is a protective factor, not just of a, what we call a balanced microbiome, but an improvement in this tolerant mechanisms of the immune system, and it's also associated with a decreased risk in, in asthma, allergies, obesity, and whatnot. Um, other things regarding the environment, for example, we've known that kids that are born in farms, they just by being born in a farm, they, they have a much reduced risk of developing asthma, allergies, and obesity as well. So these, you know, smoking guns from all these epidemiological studies were the ones that made scientists like us trying to figure out what what is it that is happening, what are kids missing out when they're born via C-section or when they're being formula fed. Um, so the, those are the type of things that we're, mm. that we're finding out. It's, everything seems to be pointing to this exposure of microbes early on. And antibiotics. And antibiotics is the biggest one, and thank you for pointing that one. So, yeah, in fact, there's no other factor that is more strongly associated with that increased risk of asthma, allergies, and obesity than the use of antibiotics in the first year and also in the last trimester during pregnancy. So how can you tell from as a parent or even I mean, if you're looking at your child or you're even looking at yourself because this is all going to apply to adults as well as kids, but how can you tell if some symptom that you're having, whether it's behavioral or grades or or you know obesity or asthma, the kinds of things we've been talking about, if that's related to a microbiome issue, and how I mean, how can you tell what the cause is? You really can't. Um, and the what, what we and others have discovered is that it's only the changes that precede or that happen before the development of these diseases that can really allow us to say, okay, is that change in microbiome that is leading to a disease? But once you know the issue is there, it's really really hard. To, to blame the cause. Um, part of the, the, the main theme when we wrote Let Them Eat Dirt is to, to try and tell parents you should really focus on these issues when the kids are really, really young. I mean, the first two and three years are the most critical, especially the first year. We're talking about prevention, not necessarily therapy, because, in fact, most of the things that, that uh, science is pointing us to is that it doesn't seem that, that by treating the microbiome you can treat the disease, at least with what we know now. Maybe later we'll find something different, but everything now points to prevention. So you're kind of hopeless in, in a way. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking because I have a friend who's a functional medicine doctor, and yeah. so she's focusing on pretty much exactly what we're talking about, what's going on in the stomach, and she is is saying that a lot of things that her patients walk in through uh, in the door with uh, as adults the obesity and the asthma and, and allergies and even funny neurological issues that a lot of those have to do with gut stuff. Yeah, but for sure. And and one of the approaches that uh, lots of practitioners take, not just, you know, functional doctors, but, but you know, regular doctors as well, is to, to treat their patients through changes in diet. Uh, and that will 
you know, without a doubt, change your microbiome. But it's, it's really hard from, you know, the, the causal point of view to say it's the change in microbiome that is doing that. Uh, it might be the change in, in diet through the microbiome or it might be the change in metabolism through, through the diet. But, yeah, it is, it is actually quite common now to, to use diet to change our immune system and our metabolism. And it makes all the sense in the world. We are, at the end of the day, what we eat. And can you recommend that kids get tested? I mean, even though you're talking Not, about prevention, I mean, is there some yeah. something to do with people who have kids who are older? Well, the problem with being tested is that we still do not know exactly what makes um, a healthy microbiome versus an unhealthy one. So the, the only testing that you can get now is you go get a test and they tell you, all the different species of microbes that you have. From that test, we do not know which ones or which are the microbes that you must have. We still do not know which are the microbes that you should not have. And importantly, we are not sure about which amount. And it is, you know, it's, I'm sure that this will change. I'm sure that if we have a conversation 10, 15 years from now, this will change. But right now it's really risky from the scientific point of view to say, okay, you should be having a higher um, amount of lactosphera in, in your gut because that wouldn't really be based on, on, on all the scientific work that we have up until now. And the issue is that my microbes vary quite substantially from yours. So it's not like when you go get a blood test for cholesterol, the, the values are normalized because everyone has, you know, a, an average amount of cholesterol in their blood and we know what's high and what's low. The issue is that with microbes, there's what we call a very high inter-individual variability, especially in children. Um, so it would be really hard from a diagnostic point of view with the information that we have now to make that assessment. Now, some of the new advances and some of the new information, and this to me makes a lot more sense, are not necessarily focusing on identifying the microorganisms, but identifying what they make. So the whole community of microbes will, is metabolically active and they make you know, products. And we know that some products are some, a, a number or an amount of, of, of uh, products that they make is, is associated with health. So even though these tests are, are still not validated, to me, it makes more sense if a test is going to finally be validated to assist the microbiome to focus on the functional aspects of, of what these bugs are making instead of just, you know, focusing on, on what's there. Because based on what we know now, it's, it's really hard to make mm -hmm. a recommendation based on a test that we don't really know what it means. Marie-Claire Arieta is an assistant professor at the University of Calgary, and she's also the co-author of Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. The other co-author is Brett Finley, and their website, where you can get a lot more information about everything we've just been talking about, and also some guidance and resources about probiotics, if you're considering that, is at letthemeatdirt.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest for RAD. Over 300 people in this country are killed every week by a drunk driver. That's the equivalent of two 747 plane crashes every single week. And the problem isn't going away unless we all do our part to stop it. So if you see someone who's about to drive after drinking, get the keys. Don't leave it up to anyone else. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. It's time for an Ask Mr. Dad column. Dear Mr. Dad, my son just started middle school, and the dean called to tell me that my son is bullying several of his classmates. I find this hard to believe. I've never seen him treat anyone badly, and no one else has ever told me otherwise. Plus, back in elementary school, he was constantly bullied because he was overweight, although he had a growth spurt and lost a lot of that weight over the summer. What should I do about this? Your first reaction, to assume that the dean is overreacting and dismisses accusation, is a natural one. But don't. Most cases of school bullying aren't reported, and when they are, schools often try to handle them in-house. So if the situation has gotten bad enough that the school feels the need to bring you in, you need to take the charges quite seriously. Your first step is to set up an in-person meeting with the school. Let them know that you want to work with them and ask for as many details as possible about your son's behavior and the circumstances around it. Schools should, and most do, document incidents as a bullying. Read the reports carefully. Did your son do something completely unprovoked, or did the other child play a role? There are often two equally legitimate sides to any story. If this is your son's first offense, there might be a reasonable explanation. If there have been other reports, that's a much bigger problem. Once you understand the situation, you need to talk with your son. It's critical that you do this when A, he's in a good mood, B, you have a big block of distraction-free time to talk, and C, you're feeling calm and confident that you'll be able to keep all traces of anger and disappointment out of your voice. One of the best places for conversations like these is in the car, where you'll have less eye contact, which will reduce the likelihood that either of you will get sidetracked by the other's facial expressions. Chances are, your son will either deny that he did anything wrong or say that he didn't realize what he, that he was hurting anyone. Given that he was bullied himself, it's entirely possible that he's either trying to protect himself by hurting others before they have a chance to hurt him or retaliate against one or more of the kids who bullied him in the past. Since your son is just starting at a new school, let's hope that this is his first and only offense and that he's genuinely acting out of fear or revenge. But even if that's not the case, he needs to understand that whatever his motivations, his behavior is hurtful and completely unacceptable. Children usually bully easy targets, meaning that they wear glasses, have hearing aids or braces, are overweight, have trouble reading, aren't very athletic, wear the wrong clothes, just aren't cool, or stand out in some other way. Most important, remind your son of how bad he felt when he was being bullied, and talk with him about how important it is to respect everyone, regardless of their differences, and have him write a note to the kids he bullied, apologizing for his behavior. Finally, it's very important that you stay on top of this situation. Keep in regular contact with the dean and your son's teachers and check in with your son often. If his bad behavior continues, ask the school to recommend a good counselor. If you have a question for us here at Positive Parenting, send it over. We'd love to talk about it. You can do that through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet. You know that there's a lot more positive parenting coming up, right? More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. 
My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday. I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. You're probably familiar with the age-old stereotype of the Jewish mother. She's a demanding, overbearing, monstrously narcissistic, guilt-mongering hovercraft. But even though that stereotype is a little bit entertaining and occasionally makes for a funny joke, it really isn't based in reality at all. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on Jewish mothers who's got a lot of anecdotes and historical text and scientific research that talks about how Jewish mothers actually help raise self-sufficient, ethical, and accomplished children. And she's going to talk to us about how Jewish mothers have nurtured their children's independence, have fostered discipline, encouraged a healthy distrust of authority, consciously cultivated geekiness and kindness, stressed education, and throughout it all maintained a sense of humor. And that Jewish mother approach has proven successful in a wide variety of settings and fields over a vast span of history. But here's the best news of all. You don't have to be Jewish to cultivate the same qualities in your own children. In other words, as the old saying goes, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Jewish mother. We'll start talking about what Jewish mothers do to raise successful, creative, empathetic, independent children who are, above all, decent human beings. I'm Armin Brott. All that and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues, right after this. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Marjorie Engel, who is the author of Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. Marjorie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So where does this whole Jewish mother stereotype come from if it's not true? Um, There is an element of truth in every stereotype. And the Jewish mother stereotype is a product of a very particular time in American history. And when you look at the vast span of Jewish history all around the world, it's not really true. But if you're just looking at sort of post-war America, uh, post-Holocaust, right when Jews are really getting uh, acclimated to American society and younger Jews are moving out to the suburbs and really becoming American and their parents are super embarrassing and still have accents, <laughs> you know, you can really right. see where the the caricature came from. And so, do you think that that mothers in Europe were raising their kids differently than mothers in the United States? Is that something that they brought with them from the old country? Well, I'm looking. The book looks even past the idea of the old country. We're looking at ancient Rome. We're looking at, you know, all around the old Middle East. I tried to make it not entirely sort of the Eastern European. Kugel eating, you know, uh, chicken soupy Jews, but also, you know, um, you know, Jews from all around the world. And so we're looking at a lot of ancient texts, and we're looking at writings by Jewish women themselves. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, the stereotype of sort of this Jewish mother is somebody who's incredibly clingy and demands that her kid be either a doctor or a lawyer and says, don't mind me, I'll put my head in the oven, and all that stuff. And when you actually look back, Jewish mothers were trying to foster independence and trying to figure out how to make their kids really be creative. And also there's this concept of tikkun olam, which means healing the world. And there was this real mission to try to do good in the world. Um, And I would like it if Jews today could sort of look back and really get to know our past more um, and non-Jews can learn from this, too, about how to raise a kid who isn't selfish or a cheater, you know, because when we tell kids that all they are is their test scores, you're right, not creating right. an environment in which menschiness, goodness can grow. Well, i got to tell you that when uh, when my first or second book came out, I was asked by some interviewer, what would what would constitute success as a father, in my my view? And my my answer was, if I could look back and say, I've raised a couple of menches. And there you go. They, exactly. She said, "What's a mensch?" And I said, "You know, a good, a decent human being, somebody who makes makes good choices for for all the right reasons." Um, and yeah, I think that that's you know, t- if you take out the word mensch and replace it with something else with decent human being, I think that's probably every parent's goal or should be to get to right. that point. Right. Um, you know, I think that we spend a lot of time now saying, "Oh, I just want him to be happy. I just want her to be happy." And we forget that happiness has to come out of some authentic, you know, you have to do something to be happy. And just if you go shortcutting right to the happiness, you know, you're not doing the work that, you know, in both your heart and in your kid's heart, you know, is earned. So just out of curiosity, so we've got the stereotypes of the Jewish mother. What are the stereotypes of Jewish fathers? Are there any? (laughs) Uh, There is an old Jewish joke where... Uh, the kid come home, comes home from school and says, Mom, Mom, I got cast in the school play. And the, mom, the mother says, Oh, honey, that's wonderful. What part did you get? And he, goes, he says, I'm playing the Jewish father. And she goes, You go by, right back there and you tell them you want a speaking part. 
Yeah. So there is the joke of the sort of spineless, trodden all over by the powerful, potent, giant, terrifying of mother. The mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the whole Philip Roth stereotype. All right. So you have got 10 different ingredients to make a mensch. And the first <laughs> one you touched on just a little bit about the going going further back than just the Kogel leading people from Poland and Russia. But what's the rest of, of the history that you need to know? Um, you know, you need to know that as far back as the Torah, you have um, humor as being a huge, a huge part of Jewish parenting. And look, I mean, if in general, in Jewish history, if you don't laugh, you'd cry. So you have humor as a tool for you know, outwitting people who are more powerful and craftier than you are. You have humor today that works as a tool for winning people to your side and your way of thinking and, you know, really getting people on your team. And, you know, look as far back as the Torah, you have Sarah laughing when God tells her she's going to have a son because she's so old. Well, she's 80 years and, old, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I like that you know all this stuff. <laughs> so, you know, so Isaac's name literally means you know, laughter. Um, we also talk about uh, distrusting authority, because which is, I think, where the Jewish mother thing di- diverges from more of the tiger mom thing, is we don't trust authority, because authority has not done well for the Jews over time, which is why it's so interesting for me watching this election and seeing, you know, the Jews Pretty divided. I don't know if we want to talk about this on the show. No, but, probably. Um, <laughs> don't want to get into that too much. Probably not. Let's yeah, move on. <laughs> um, but we'd like to leave this interview, uh, you know, friends. Jew- you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not safe at all. Uh, so, uh, in general, you know, whenever we people think that the Jews have never had power and have always been, you know, shtetl and Holocaust, but there have been periods in world history, both in um, uh, middle in the Middle Ages in Spain, even before that in Egypt, in Constantinople, and in um, the Enlightenment in Western Europe, you had times when the Jews were pretty involved in the, the regular people's middle class, upper middle class world. And every time we've had these good times, they've been followed by scary bad times, but it's important to raise a kid whose values can be consistent, whether times are good or bad. Um, so what else? Um, no, well, that's, encouraging that's, uh, no, well, I don't want to get into to that right, right this second because I want to go back to the, the uh, distrusting authority thing. But yeah. I, I think it's there's still a sense of working within the system, not being an anarchist necessarily, right? Definitely, definitely. Because the Jewishness is a really, you know, communal religion. Um, it's very much about, you know, I always joke about spirituality is an individual thing, but religion is a team sport. And, you know, raising your voice in song with other people, working towards social justice with other people, that's been a huge part of the Jewish tradition. And I think it's, especially in a world that can be really scary, it's a huge source of comfort and community. It is, yeah. And it's it's something that, that uh, a lot of people kind of break up from, I think, that there's yes. a... And it's hard because, you know, I understand that people have different attitudes about God and about going to a house of worship, and that's fine. And I think that there are ways to be connected to your tradition, whatever your tradition is, that don't necessarily involve prayer. 
you know, that they can involve, right. you know, looking into your heritage and the music and the food and the storytelling and your family history. All of that are great ways to yeah. give your kid a grounding in who they are. Do you think that there's something a little bit different about Judaism in that it, that there is a bigger distinction between cultural religion and the spiritual part of it? That is such a good question. I do think that there is something a little different because, you know, Jew, we've never had, you know, just to, to, to offer Catholicism as a, a parallel, um, we don't have this central authority. We don't have a pope. Um, and we Jewish Judaism has always been super fractured. And there have always been, you know, uh, different threads of how, quote-unquote, religious people are, but still had this really strong identification with Jewishness. And, you know, look, in America, you know, you look at the history of the Jewish press here, and it was absolutely anti-religion. Um, but it was about, I mean, I keep going back to the word community, but that's really true. Um, you know, we had language in, you know, in, in East, Eastern culture, Eastern European culture, it was Yiddish, and then in more Western ones, it was Ladino, which is a mix of Spanish and Hebrew. Um, so we've always had our own language, our own foods, our own, you know, even after 1492 when the Jews were expelled from Spain, there were all these people who had traditions that they really didn't understand about lighting candles and, you know, saying a prayer over bread. But it wasn't, a so, it wasn't called Jewishness because you weren't allowed to practice it. But people right. have... You know, we cling to our traditions, which is well, kind of a nice thing. Which is interesting to me because the the conversos or the Moranos, you'd hear yes. these stories every once in a while. Who, who people who had been several generations Catholic were still lighting candles or baking challah or something that they didn't quite understand that actually was a exactly. throwback to There's their previous. There's actually some yeah. lovely children's books about conversos um, that I was shocked to find while I was researching this. I love that you know this stuff. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not used to talking to interviewers who are really informed. <laughs> I, I, how could I help it with having a, growing up with a Jewish mother? So. Yeah, there you go. All right. Talking to Marjorie Engel, who's the author of Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Marjorie. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott and talking to Marjorie Engel, who's the author of Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. So let's talk about education. I mean, that's one of the, we mentioned this briefly in passing, that one of the stereotypes about the Jewish mother is you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, you know, if, if you're a plumber or something like that, even though you might be making more money, it's it's not okay. Uh, but you talk about emphasizing, but don't fetishize education. How do how do you do that without being a pain? Right. <laughs> um, 
Well, you know, part of the genesis of this book was me thinking about the fact that Jews have been successful in so many different fields over the course of, of history. It's not just being doctors and lawyers. It's being Academy Award-winning directors. It's being nonfiction Pulitzer Prize winners. It's being all different kinds of scientists. Um, so I think there's something <laughs> there's something in the water, there's something in the hollow recipe that's making Jews um, you know, figure out what you're interested in and then work really hard to achieve that. Um, and education, you know, since Jews often were newbies in various different cultures after they got kicked out of another country, since Jews have been kicked out of a zillion different countries, um, a lot of times school was a way into learning the language. Um, but, you know, there also have been huge barriers, uh, you know, well, quotas. quotas yeah. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. So and and now I think what's relevant is we look at schools now and often I think in our heart of hearts a lot of us know that they're not emphasizing necessarily the right thing and things that make kids with really good values that um, the sort of obsessive interest in standardized test scores I think you know every time there's a huge cheating scandal that roils fancy schools I mean there have been some you know, Orthodox Jewish schools that have had them too, but also these, you know, fancy, I'm in New York City, so like, you know, the schools like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science, every time there's a huge scandal, a huge teaching, a huge uh, cheating thing, people are always shocked. And I'm like, if you've told your kid already that they are, all they are is a test score, what do you think that they're going to do? Of course well, they're yeah. going to cheat. Yeah. So um, I'm curious about this. I was asking you about the, the difference between Judaism and other religions relative to the cultural component. But I'm kind of curious about this whole education component as well, because I think any culture, any religion would say, well, of course we value education. Yes, so what is yes. it what is that's different about the way that we do it, Jews do it, as opposed to other people? I mean, certainly there's enough stereotypes out there about the tiger parents and the, the Asian cultures yes. that value education. How is it different uh, with Jews and other people? You know, people? my mom's uh, my dad died a few years ago, and my mom, who is a professor of Jewish education, remarried a professor of not Jewish education, but his field is sort of how waves of immigration affected the New York City public schools and how the New York City public schools worked to sort of acclimatize all of these new immigrants who were coming in through New York City, where so many new immigrants came from. So I like to think about it in terms of what role the the public schools had in teaching Jews, new Jews, how to be Americans. And it is important, but then you go home and you also get the values at home. So uh, schools have been, as I said, important in teaching language um, and important in teaching sort of what you need to be a good citizen of the country that you live in. But in terms of literacy, which is a huge, huge, huge thing that has gone back to, you know, we're called the people of the book. And I think the real love of literacy and storytelling is more likely to come from home than it is from school. You know, now kids in a lot of schools in America, we read texts, we don't read books. And, you know, everything is about, can you answer these five questions? What are you putting on your reading log? Can you find the verb? And sort of getting lost in the pleasure of a book is, I think, something that we kind of have to do at home now. And I think that, you know, if I, I, you know, as I'm thinking out loud now, one of my own little personal passions is encouraging kids to read graphic novels because it's so pleasurable and schools still often have a, a bug up their butts about it. And 
you know, the whole comic book world it was founded by Jews because it was a world that was open to Jews when there weren't there were a lot of careers that artists couldn't have. Oh yeah, um, well, if you look at all the 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 founders of Superman and Batman, the, they, certainly they were. Yes, they were. Captain yeah, America. And, right. So you know, you mentioned telling stories, and that's something I think that I mean, I remember growing up, I guess I, this still happens at any time my parents get together with with anybody, <laughs> I mean, or, or any, you get three Jews together. You, you can't start off an answer to a question without saying, you know, there's a story about that. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's, an, exactly. It's, a, it's a fascinating thing. And how do you instill that in your kids when they're not reading as much or when right. they're not at least paying attention, doing, doing the things that you're talking about? I mean, they're more concerned about where the verb is, which is an important thing. But to the, but they're they're not learning to draw analogies between exactly. their history and whatever they're hearing right now. Um, you know, there's uh, I'm, I'm sure you know there's this book, The Smartest Kids in the World, by Amanda Ripley, and she looks at education in wildly different countries, you know, wildly different economic environments, and across countries, one of the things that is most correlated with kids' success is whether the parents read, and that was true across, um, you know. Uh, even within the same parents of the same income level, versus the readers versus the non-readers. And people and adults mostly don't read. And this can't be a do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do thing. Um, but I also think any kind of storytelling teaches you how to make connections in your head and give, teaches you empathy, um, teaches you to follow a plot, to build character. So, you know, you can do books on tape in the car. We don't call them books on tape anymore, do we? What do we call them now? I don't know. Books on um, MP3 or something, yeah. <laughs> Whatever they call it audible, I guess is what you audible. Sure, yeah. um, you know you can tell stories in the car. You can tell play two truths and a lie at dinner, which is when you know everybody has to say two, three things that happen to them, and two of them are true and one is a lie, and that's a great practice in storytelling. Jokes are stories. Listening to the Moss podcasts, um, and again with the with comic books where it's only pleasure. Um, I think all of that is really good for kids, and it's a thing that um, I keep coming back to in terms of why. Jews have been accomplished even when the deck has been totally stacked against them in some countries. All right. Let's keep talking about stereotypes, and one of them being money, which is one of the, <laughs> the less humorous stereotypes that's yes, out there. Yes, not funny at all. Yeah. And so where, what, do you, what do you do about that? I mean, certainly you want to have money, but you know, there's this, the, the other stereotype about the Jewish-American princess, and you know, the, 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 there's one about the father who says something like, you know, don't, don't ever marry a a guy who gives you a ring that's smaller than this one or, or you know, something like <laughs> yeah. that. There, there is yeah. this, this push about that. And what's, how, how do you get your kids to have a healthy respect for money but not to the exclusion of everything else? That's a really good question. And it's, um, you know, this is relatively new in American history when we've been, you know, upper middle class, upper class people. And, you know, I think that perhaps there has been a certain element of trying to keep up with the Joneses. Since you can't have a pedigree if you're Jewish, you can't be a fancy wasp, you can at least have the stuff. Um, so I think we have to be really wary of, um, you know, making kids um, prize the wrong things. I mean, I feel like I was super lucky. I grew up middle class. Um, but my parents always, always, always made it clear that we valued experiences over things. So... You know, I, I did not have a lot of stuff. My, I remember, you know, I desperately wanted IZOD shirts, and my mom was like, no, these are fine. 
And if you want to save up your money and buy an IZOD shirt, you can. Um, we took really great family vacations, um, but we didn't, you know, my parents were not about, you know, no designer labels, no fancy house or furniture. Um, both of my parents had sort of healthy jobs. Um, and I think that we have to, this is another one where you have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Um, if you're materialistic, you're going to raise materialistic kids no matter what you say. And, you know, I think part of the whole tikkun olam, fixing the world ethos that we have, has to be about look at what other people don't have and what can you do to try to make their, their lives easier. Tikkun olam, which is different from the magazine, by the way. For, for those who, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm not, yes. not, a, not a big Michael Lerner fan, but not, that's not a, me whole, either. a whole no. topic. And of, I can't get so. him off his mailing list. He just keeps putting me back <laughs> on there. But the concept of tikkun olam, which means fixing or repairing the world, is, is a good one. I think that that's something that, that probably, I don't know that it's any more Jewish than anything else. I think most parents would say, I, I'd like to leave the world a better place for my kids than it was for me. Not that it was such a terrible right. tragedy for me, but you know that everybody, every generation should move forward. But that also means, again, you have to do it um, exactly. and not just talk yeah. about it. Um, I just I remember, you know, uh, I talk a lot in the book about the good enough mother that you don't have to, be, you know, it's better for your kid if you're not a perfect parent because then you've given your kid room to watch you fail, see that failure isn't, you know, fatal, and for your kid also to be able to soothe themselves and comfort themselves when you can't do it. But I was going to, you know, a story in which I didn't screw up royally was, um, you know, I just remember – Taking, you know, tzedakah, um, officially, you know, people translate it to mean money for charity, but it actually literally means righteousness. And, you know, we put, we give the kids allowance and tzedakah money, and then we figured out what, you know, we figure out what to do with it. And I remember when Josie was maybe four, sitting with her in my lap and looking at the Kiva website, which is, you know, a microloans program, and we decided that she would pick something and I would pick something and we would both fund and see which one of our funds got repaid faster so she picked um she picked somebody something with sheep and i picked something with women in samoa in really cool outfits with spears in, involving <laughs> fishing and okay. she won um All so right. it was just fun marjorie ingles the author of mamala knows best what jewish mothers do to raise successful creative empathetic independent children marjorie thanks very much thanks you thank you so much armin it was great to be here Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.